Let's dig into our passage this morning. This is God's Word, Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. Paul starts off by asking a question. He says this, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. So this morning, I want to start just on a historical journey, all right? I want you to think back of 1776. It's July 4th, and it was on that day, Thomas Jefferson, who would go on to be the third president of the United States. At that time, he was just a representative for the state of Virginia to the Second Continental Congress. He penned these words, and they're considered some of the most influential and most impactful words that history has ever known. He wrote this, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And really in that one sentence, Jefferson captured not only like hundreds of years of political philosophy and thinking, although he did that, What he also did was he conceived of something completely new, this idea of a new nation surrounded around one idea, the idea of freedom. The idea that human beings could live and self-govern in such a way that they could live in complete and utter liberty and freedom. And that's such a good instinct, isn't it? In fact, at the heart of that is something we all long for. I know I long for it. This idea of freedom. I know when I was in college and even in high school, I would be doing things I know I shouldn't be doing, or I would be in the early years of my marriage and I would look into the mirror and I would say, isn't a new way possible? Isn't there a way forward? Isn't a freedom beyond the things that are weighing me down? Isn't that something that's possible? I'm sure you've all asked that question. After all, we live in America. This idea of freedom is an American idea, right? We love everything that's free. We like our ranch dressing free from fat, right? We love the song Free Bird. We love freedom. Freedom is everywhere in the United States. And I want to start on that historical journey because I really believe that that is what Paul has been trying to highlight from Romans chapter 1 through the first half of Romans chapter 6, is this idea that freedom, true, real, lasting freedom, 
is available to anybody who is willing to reach out and take it. And this isn't a freedom that's a political freedom from the English Empire. It's not a freedom that's enshrined in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. After all, those freedoms are tenuous and subject to change as the events of this last week have demonstrated. No, but Paul is interested in a much greater freedom, a true freedom. And what is that freedom he's talking about? Well, we talked about it a little bit last week, if you were with us. It's in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. This was the last verse that we looked at. Paul said that this freedom, he said, for sin will have no dominion over you. That word dominion is a word of power. He's saying sin will have no authority or dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under grace. That's the freedom Paul's talking about, a freedom from sin and a freedom from being under the law. And now we have to be careful here because a lot of people, they can hear this, right? They can hear, all right, I'm free from the law. So that must mean that we throw out God's law, that we throw out the Ten Commandments. We throw out God's way to live because now we're under grace and we're no longer under law. And people can misconstrue what Paul's saying to say that. But we know that that's not correct. And why? Because Jesus himself said that that's not what he came to do. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is Matthew Chapter 5, Jesus, during one of his most famous sermons, put it this way. Speaking to his followers, he said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, this is key, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to throw away the Ten Commandments, throw away his moral standard for living. So Paul can't be saying that either when he says you are no longer under law, but you're under grace. So the question is, what does Paul mean? Well, Paul means this. Paul says, if you are no longer under law, it means you are no longer under the curse of the law. It's what Paul means. He's saying that through faith in Jesus, we as his followers are free from the curse of the law. Maybe you've never thought about that idea of being under God's curse, but it's actually all the way weaved out throughout scripture. Let me show it to you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. We know that God had created Adam and Eve. He created them in this perfect paradise. But Adam and Eve sinned against God by eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And God shows up and he curses the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve into this sin. He curses Eve, telling her she's going to have pain in childbearing now that she sinned against God. And then he turns to Adam and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then just one chapter over, this is Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel. And Cain, who's resentful of Abel, murders him in the field while God's not looking, or so he thinks. 
And God comes to Cain with these words. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So we see here two curses from God, chapter 3, chapter 4, just in the first book of the Bible. And then this continues on. I could cite many more examples, but I'm going to skip ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is the last book of what's known as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the last book that Moses wrote. And he gives these words to finish out this last book. But Speaking to Israel here, speaking to the people of God, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration and all that you undertake to do until you're destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until it has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever and inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish and the heavens over your head shall be bronze. The earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain from your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. And I would continue on, but this goes on for another 44 verses. That's a lot. I used to teach youth ministry and people would raise their hand, students would raise their hand. They said, that doesn't sound like Jesus. And I would point out to them, well, actually, Jesus gives a similar curse. He gives a similar harsh rebuke, similar harsh words for those who don't turn to him and seek his forgiveness and seek union with him. Again, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. These words are probably familiar to you. Jesus, he said, is gathered. He says he's going to come again one day to judge the living and the dead. And people will come to him and they'll say, Lord, Lord, look at these great things that we did for you. And Jesus will say, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what's the point here? Well, the point is this, that Paul is saying, just like Jesus, that you now are no longer under law, you are under grace. He's saying that you are no longer under the curse of God. God's judgment and punishment for your sins are completely atoned for, completely taken care of at the cross of Jesus. You are free from the curse of the law. That's true freedom. That's the freedom Paul wants to tell us about. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul puts this well in another place. He says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's a reference to Jesus and his cross. It reminds me of the lyrics from Horatio Spafford. He was a hymnal, hymn writer. He wrote this hymn called It Is Well. He write, wrote, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. 
my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It is well. It is well with my soul. That's freedom. That's freedom. But it ends up leading to a question, doesn't it? And you've probably asked this question yourself. Paul asked it because he knows that's what's on our mind. Romans chapter 6, verse 15, the first verse we read, he says, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? And that's a logical question, isn't it? Okay, if I am no longer under the curse of the law, if I know, even if I sin tomorrow, I will never be condemned for it. I'll never be punished for it because it was punished fully and completely on the cross of Jesus. Therefore, can't I live any way that I want? If I'm never going to be punished for sin, then can I live in sin? And Paul answers this question for us in two parts. Two parts. Paul says, by no means. By no means, because true freedom is slavery to Jesus. We'll see that in verses 15 through 19. And then he says, by no means, because true freedom brings life. So let's look at that first point that Paul says in verses 15 through 19. Paul says, shall we sin now that we're no longer under law? By no means, true freedom is slavery to Jesus. Paul says this, do you not know, this is verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, we hear that word freedom, right? We hear that word freedom. And immediately, this conjures up kind of a lot of thoughts or emotions to us. And as Americans, when we think of freedom, we think freedom means no boundaries. Freedom means no constraints. Freedom from anything that would stop us from living the way that we want to live. That's how we think of freedom, right? No boundaries, no constraints, no rules. This is kind of like Elsa freedom, Elsa from Frozen. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Children, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't watch the movie Frozen, you're better off for it. But if you, if you haven't watched it, it's the story of this woman named Elsa. She's the queen of Arendelle. And she has these special powers that she's felt for her entire life. She has to suppress. Because if she really showed them, if she really gave vent to them, then people would judge her and make her an outcast. So one day she frees herself from Arendelle and she runs into the hills and she sings this song. You know the song, right? Sing it along with me. Ready? No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But she says this. She says, right, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That's freedom. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, no moral constraints. In other words, freedom is the right to live how I want to live without any boundaries holding me back. And that's not just Disney movies, by the way. The Supreme Court recently came out with a decision where they defined freedom in similar terms. Listen to this quote. At the heart of liberty, this is the highest court in the land, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one, one's own concept of existence, of meaning of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. See, that is how we understand freedom. No boundaries, no constraints. And this concept of freedom, right, it, it plays out in our day-to-day -day lives in very practical ways. I'm sure you've said things like this or thought things like this. Oftentimes we think, I know I made a commitment. I know I made vows. 
I know I'm supposed to love this person for the rest of my life. I even have a wedding band that proves that. But wouldn't we just be so much better off if we went our separate ways? If we freed ourselves from this vow, freed ourselves from this commitment, then we both would be free, free to be our own people. Or maybe you've said things like this, you know, it's so difficult at my job. I have so many obligations, so many people counting on me. One day, retirement, when I'm freed of those boundaries, freed of those obligations, then I'll be free. Then I'll have happiness. Then I'll have joy. Or you find yourself maybe in this room looking to the next stage of life when I don't have kids in diapers. Or, hey, when I no longer have to be accountable to my teacher and I graduate from high school or from college. Or when I'm my own boss, then I'll have freedom. Or if I could just indulge in this one sin, then the pressure would finally be removed. I'd finally have freedom. I'd finally have release. That's our idea of freedom, isn't it? Freedom means no boundaries, no constraints. Just think with me really quick here, though. That idea of freedom is super naive, isn't it? Because what that assumes is that you can actually live in such a way that you have no boundaries. But I face this dilemma every night, right? I could either eat a cookie or I can go work out. Those are my choices. Now, the second that I choose working out, I am drawing boundaries, aren't I? I'm saying yes to working out and I'm saying no to cookie or vice versa. I say yes to cookie. All of a sudden, I've bound myself to that decision and I've chosen not to work out. Living without boundaries is impossible. The second that you make any choice and you say yes to something, you automatically say no to another thing and you live within boundaries. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul says here. Paul is saying that idea of freedom that we have is actually an impossibility. That idea of freedom is an impossibility because we're all slaves to something. Paul says that you are either going to be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you are going to be a slave to Jesus, which leads to life. Notice what Paul said, verse 16, right? Paul says that you can either be enslaved to sin or be enslaved to obedience. Verses 17 and 18. He says something similar. He says you will either be a slave to sin or you'll be a slave to righteousness. Verses 20 through 22, he says you will be a slave to sin or you will be a slave to God. He's saying that no matter what you find yourself in, you will find yourself in one of these two categories, either a slave to sin, which is true slavery, or you will find yourself being a slave to Jesus, which is true freedom. But there's not another option. It's one of those two. And this is important, right? Because in our culture, we live in this culture that says Christianity or following Jesus is an enemy of freedom, doesn't it? After all, Christianity draws boundaries. It makes you believe certain things and do certain things. It makes you believe certain things like the Trinity. It makes you do certain things or commands you to do certain things like abstain from sex outside of marriage or abstain from drunkenness. And this idea that Christianity is really a straitjacket to freedom, I think is summed up well by a New York Times author. His name's M. Scott Peck. M. Scott Peck wrote, he was, uh, Peck, by the way, is a, a licensed counselor and therapist. And he recounts this conversation he had with a woman whose name was Charlene. Charlene was visiting him because she said she felt trapped. She felt confined. She felt all this anxiety because she felt stifled. And Scott, uh, a Peck, 
talks to her about her former life and she brings up that she's a Christian and being a counselor, he said, well, why don't you consider living life in the way that you were raised, living life as a Christian? And Charlene looked at him and said, quote, no, I could never do that. There's no life for me in that. I need to be free to be my own part person and live for my own sake. Christianity would be my death. We ought to live for our own sakes, not for God. Obedience to anyone or anything is a straitjacket. And now that's extremely ironic, isn't it? Here's a woman who feels trapped and stifled and feels like she's constrained. And when presented with the option of following Jesus, she said, no, I can't do that because that would make me trapped, stifled, and contained. Here's a woman who encapsulates what our culture thinks about Christianity. Christianity is a hindrance to freedom. But take what Paul says seriously here. Take what Paul says seriously. When a person is united to Jesus, a slave to Jesus, following him as their master, they are actually living as they were designed for, and they experience true freedom. So for instance, th think about how we think of sexuality as a culture. I remember I used to think this before I became a follower of Jesus. I thought, we had a sexual revolution, people. We should be able to use our bodies how we want, when we want, in the way we want. But ask yourself, what has been the result of the sexual revolution? Hasn't it led to heightened levels of divorce? Hasn't it led to the proliferation of single-parent single households? Hasn't it led to the overall objectification of women? In fact, Paul would say, just look at the secular research, people. This is what Paul would say if he was here with us today. He'd say, just look at the secular research. Those who are married and in a committed relationship, a lifelong relationship with somebody of the opposite sex, those people show a greater sense of sexual fulfillment and satisfaction than those who live as if they can have sex outside of any boundaries. And so Paul would ask us to say, who's really free? Is it the person who uses their body in any way they choose, or is it the one who uses their body in the way that it was designed for? Who's really free? Or again, you know, the church, they say you have to do things like go to church, and they have things to say about how you spend your time and how you spend your money. And again, Paul would say, just look at the secular research, people. He would say, those who actually give more money, do you realize that they're actually happier as a result? Those who give their time and invest in service to their local church, those people are actually more joyful as a result. I found this statistic really interesting. Those who, during the COVID-19 pandemic, those who have actively been involved in church participation, those people, evangelical Christians who go to church, their happiness index has actually increased throughout this past year, while every other demographic, their happiness index has gone down 8%. Isn't that interesting? And again, Paul would ask, well, who's really free? Those who spend their time, spend their money, and use their church participation in the way that God designed us for, or those who say, there should be no boundaries on my time, no boundaries on my money, no boundaries toward church participation. Just think of Elsa, okay? Let's go back to Elsa. Right? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And then she finds herself isolated in an ice castle, you know, in community with absolutely nobody. Who's really free? Is it Elsa? I don't think so. 
I don't think so. So back to our question. Back to the question that Paul asked, right? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means, because that's not true freedom. True freedom is not when you're free from all boundaries, free to sin, but true freedom comes in slavery and obedience to Jesus. And you will either find yourself a slave to sin, which is true slavery, or you will find yourself a slave to Jesus, which is true freedom. True freedom. And I love what Paul says. Notice this. This is in verse 17. Paul says, but thanks be to God. He's talking to this Roman church now. And he's saying, you Roman church are a perfect paradigm for what it means to live in this freedom that Jesus offers. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. See, that's what it looks like to live under grace. That's what it looks like to be free and be enslaved to Jesus. You become, verse 17, obedient from the heart. And obedient to what? Verse 17, he says, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, true freedom looks like obedience to God from the heart to the law that God has given us to live in. That's true freedom. Almost all commentators, by the way, when they look at this passage and they're looking at what Paul said, they think that this is a reference back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, where God visits his people Israel and he gives them promises. He says, I'm going to do this for you. This is my gift to you. I'm going to give you this grace. God speaking, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So that's how you know you're truly free. You know you're truly free if you once had a heart of stone, a heart that had no desire for God, a heart that had no affection for his ways, no care for God's rules, no, no care for God's commandments whatsoever, and it's been transformed by God's spirit into a heart of flesh that now desires what God desires, has affections for what God has affections for, and walks in the perfect law that Jesus walked in perfectly. That's how you know you've been given this new life. That's how you know you're truly free. As a slave to Jesus, you begin to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. And that only makes sense, right? Because if you're united to Jesus, wouldn't it be the case, if you're united with him, that you would start to look more like him? I had roommates in college, and we weren't, we weren't exactly the same, right? And... By the time that we lived together for two and three years, we started becoming a lot more like each other. So they started doing a lot of things like me, right? They started actually cleaning the apartment. They started drinking coffee. They started waking up early in the morning. I'm a really early bird. I wake up at five in the morning. They started waking up at like nine in the morning. That was an improvement, though. They used to wake up at one. And I started doing things that they liked, too. I started listening to Drake. Exactly. 
I started watching this horrible show, Friday Night Lights, horrible, horrible show. I started, I started committing the capital sin, which is watching Notre Dame football. It's terrible. Things that I would never do because I lived with these people close together, united with them, I became more like them. So wouldn't it be the case that if we are united to Jesus, if we have been given new hearts by Jesus, if we're truly free in Jesus because we are slaves to Jesus, wouldn't it be the case that our desires would be similar to the desires of Jesus? That what we love would be the same things that Jesus loves? You know, many people today, right, I, I know I think this way all the time. I think, you know what, I love Jesus, but I don't really love church. Well, Jesus himself said he loved the church and actually gave his life for the church. Or sometimes we say, I love Jesus, but I, I just don't really resonate with the Bible. I don't really resonate with scripture. Well, Jesus said, Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Or Jesus himself said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So you can't say, well, I love Jesus, but I, I don't want to follow Jesus in obedience to his law. Because those who are under grace, friends, are not only forgiven by Jesus, they're transformed by Jesus. Those who have been freed from the curse of the law are also those who are freed to obedience to the law, freed to obedience to Jesus, freed to slavery to Jesus. And I kind of love what Paul says in verse 19 because he levels with us. Okay, look at verse 19. He says, for I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, what Paul is saying is like, hey, I realize this is a paradox. This doesn't really make sense on a human level, right? You think slavery and you think drudgery and oppression and abuse. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not the case. He's saying, I'm just speaking that way because of your natural limitations. This is a paradox because you're thinking, yeah, I'm saying, hey, in order to be free, you need to become a slave. And in order to be liberated, you need to be confined. So Paul, what he does is he actually gives us a theological term to understand this. He says, Actually, what this is called is sanctification. Verse 19, he continues saying, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification meaning simply this, growing in holiness, growing more and more and more like Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. What does true freedom look like? It looks like holiness. It looks like becoming more and more and more, day by day by day, like Jesus. And how do I do that? Well, as Paul said in verse 19, right? Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, right? Using my body, using my lips, using my mind, using my heart for things that lead to my pollution and lawlessness. Now what do I do? I now present those same members, my lips, my mind, my hands, my feet, as slaves to righteousness, which leads to holiness, which leads to sanctification. This is really like two, if you've been with us through this study of Romans, Paul's had these two theological terms, right? One being justification. Justification means that through faith in Jesus, united with him, you are forgiven of all your sins and you are righteous because of the perfect life Jesus lived on your behalf. 
And now Paul says that as God sees you now as perfectly righteous, he is now making more and more a reality in you through sanctification. My uh, great uncle, actually Hannah's great uncle, Hannah's my wife, her great uncle used to be a pastor and he had, I mean, countless books, wall-to-wall books, old books. These books were like from the 19th century books. And he'd pull them out and he'd say, I love this book and I got to go get this cover replaced because the cover was all tattered and it was old and it had water damage and mildew. And he said, but I have to go get the cover first because what he realized was that the cover, the cover of that book protects it from any water damage, any mildew, any mold. And once the cover was good, then he could go about cleaning the interior pages and restoring those. That's how Paul wants us to think about justification and sanctification. In justification, God gives us a new cover. He clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus, so he looks at us and he sees the perfection of his son, Jesus. Thank God. He doesn't see my sin. He sees Jesus. And now in sanctification, God goes about working in my heart to make that more and more a reality day by day by day, cleaning the inner pages of my life, the soiled and dark sparks spots within my heart. So who's the most free person? It's the person united to Jesus, enslaved to him, and growing in holiness day by day. You won't hear that on TV, by the way. So that's Paul's answer. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you want to be free? And true freedom freedom comes in being made holy by being a slave to Jesus. And Paul lands on this last couple of verses. This is his second point. He says, should we sin now that we're no longer under law but under grace? He says, by no means, true freedom brings life. Beginning in verse 20, Paul says this. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time of the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. I love what Paul does here. Because he just makes a final appeal to this church in Rome. He makes this appeal to us as well. He says, Romans, church in Rome, people I care about, people I love, think about your life when you were slaves to sin. What was the outcome? What was the result of those things? When you lived to gratify your selfishness, when you lived to indulge your lusts, when you lived for the approval of others, when you lived as if money-making was the only thing that was important, what was the result? Did that sin that promised life and promised freedom, did you actually get that when you indulged in those sins? Did they actually give you the life and freedom that they promised, or did they give you shame and death? And that's why Paul uses this metaphor of a tree, right? That's what he's talking about with these fruits. He's saying, hey, when you live in sin, it's like taking this tree and planting it in a desert soil with no water, no nourishment, and do you ever get fruit from that? No. So why do you keep grabbing that tree and planting it in the same old spot? That's not who you are anymore. Because likewise, every time we sin, every time we live outside of the boundaries we were designed for, it always leads to fruitlessness. It always leads to shame and death. I'm constantly made aware of this. I I was actually just made aware of this yesterday. My wife, she's spent the whole entire week with the kids. She's exhausted and she says, I just need one afternoon to myself. So I said, yeah, you know, because I'm a good husband, right? I'm a good husband. So I'm like, yeah, go, go shopping, go shopping, go do what you want, like get out of the house. 
And things are going well. You know, I'm making pancakes. The kids are loving me. It's a great, great Saturday. Then all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, things are going well. The house is relatively clean. I'm going to start doing just a little bit of work here and there. And then all of a sudden, right as I start doing work, it's always when you start doing work, by the way, the kid, Jane, who is no more than 16 months old, starts screaming at the top of her lungs and starts crying and starts whining. And so what do I do? I yell at Jane. I go, Jane! You laugh, but that's how I said it. Jane! And what was the result? Do you think Jane stopped whining? Do you think that I felt better having yelled at my daughter? I mean, she's only this high. No, I lived in the death of my own pettiness and ruthlessness. You know what happened later? Eli, Eli, my son, five years old, has his hair grabbed by Annie, the other 16-month-old, and starts ripping it. And my son is weeping. He's crying. And he comes up to me and he says, Dad, Annie pulled my hair. You know what I said? I don't care. You guys are laughing. I actually said that. What was the result? You know what the result was? My son, whom I love, felt like his dad doesn't care about him, and he didn't love him. And I feel that shame even this morning of being a careless father. I don't know how you do it, moms. (laughs) That was one day. That was one afternoon. Hannah comes home, and she asks, how'd it go? You know what I was thinking? Fruitless. Fruitless. For the end of those things is death, because slavery to sin is death. It's not what you were designed for. I like how Michael Ramson puts it, whenever you break God's law, you wind up proving God's law while breaking yourself in the process. Isn't that true? Paul ends with these words, verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And you know what its end is? Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't think I can end a sermon with any better words than that. But I will end it with one question. Do you want freedom? Do you want that new life? Do you want to know what it means to be under grace? True freedom is slavery to Jesus. And it leads always to eternal life. It's a free gift for you if you'll only reach out and grab it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God. Thank you, God, that we no longer are under the curse of the law. That no longer are we fearful of your condemnation and your punishment, but you have set us free to true freedom and forgiveness and righteousness in Jesus. We are justified. Our sin, you've borne it on the cross in your son Jesus, and we bear it no more. God, it's well with our soul. And God, thank you that you've also given us not only a freedom from the curse of the law, but you've given us true freedom and slavery to Jesus. That you've given us a life filled with your spirit, with a new heart that longs to obey your ways and live in the ways that you've designed us. And God, I pray for all of us here this morning, that that would become a reality if it's not a reality. If we're not living within it, would you help us live in it? And if we've never tasted it or known it, we pray that we would taste and see that you are good. 
And lastly, God, I do want to pray that you would bring eternal life to us. I pray that you would sanctify us, make us more holy people who are becoming more and more day by day like your son, Jesus Christ, obedient to your law and in true freedom. We ask this all in Jesus' name, by the power of your spirit. Amen.